Good morning. Good to have us here together. I'm Alex. And before you start wondering where my accent is from, I'm Dutch. Born and raised in Belgium and spent many years in the Indo-Malay world in Indonesia, so that kind of mixed up all my languages, so I don't speak any language correct anymore. <laughs> but we are here to talk about showing compassion on our shame cultures. So hope you're in the right room. And let's ask the Lord to be in our midst. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your amazing grace that we are your children. And thank you, God, for your amazing grace that you also invite us to join you in what you want to do among the nations, what you are doing among the nations, Lord. And the plan is much bigger than we can fathom. But, Lord, you've created us in your image. You've given us minds and hearts, and we want to serve you with with all of our strength, all of our mind, all of our heart, Lord. And so help us as we want to grapple with some of the things when we go to the unreached, Lord. And how do we communicate your love and show and demonstrate your love among the peoples you have called us to be amongst as you have gone ahead of us and are you with us? So teach us some things today, Lord. Have each of us some things we can take home and that we can bless others with and glorify you with. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to start with a story. When we just arrived, my wife and I, we just arrived in Indonesia for a few months. We were invited in a family's home. An Indonesian family, Muslim. Indonesia is the largest Muslim country in the world. And we were sitting on the floor eating a great meal together with some of our language helpers. We had a great time eating with our hands out of the plates. We were just standing, sitting on the floor and things like that. And then the meal was over and we had a really good time. Uh, I can't remember how well we did it because we didn't speak the language that well yet, but we got up and let's put the plates together and I'm going to help out doing the dishes in the kitchen. Something very Western, I think, to do and to help out and to be nice. But there was quite a quick frown on the host's face and, oh, no, 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 don't do that. And like, okay, I was sensitive enough to, okay, there's something not right here. Let me just go back to my seat or on the ground and let's do nothing, but... I was trespassing a lot of cross-cultural uh, cultural clues or cultural rules in their, in, in, in their, in their context. And so, um, well, first of all, you're a guest. You just have been there an hour and a half or so with the people. And so, your role is to be a guest, not to be in the kitchen. Secondly, well, it's a place for the women in that culture to be in the kitchen. And thirdly, when you are standing up like this and wanting to do dishes, you're basically accusing them that your dishes were actually kind of dirty and I know how to do your dishes better. Things which I, I never thought of. And so, so things you mean for good and which you do out of a good heart may be interpreted by somebody else from, from a completely different agenda, with a completely different meaning. So I want to look at when we go into cultures that are honor-shame-based. And we'll talk a little bit about what those are. Um, when we do things there, how do they interpret things? What really opened our eyes was when the tsunami hit in Indonesia, December 26, 2004. I was living on an island on the northern tip of Sumatra. We had a team right there on the ground, but living far enough inland that the tsunami waves didn't hit where they were at. But from day one... We, our team of national workers was immediately involved in the relief work and, and in helping and following that, the development work. And why is this happening? 
in this most strongly Muslim part of the country. Banda Aceh is the veranda to Mecca, they call it. The ships to go to Mecca from Indonesia were always leaving from the, the farthest tip, the closest tip to Mecca. And they were leaving from there. They, they were priding themselves. And so why is God punishing a, such a pious place in their minds? And then who is coming to help them? There were no Muslim nations there at first at all. It took several weeks or months before Muslim relief agencies were there. But there was United Nations uh, with Western relief agencies, UNICEF. There was World Relief and Samaritan's Purse and some of those organizations. Um, or just the Red Cross. Not the uh, not Red Crescent Moon, but the Red Cross was there. Things like that. So things which in the mind of Muslims represent Christianity. Why are Christians helping us? Why is Christianity helping us and not Islam? And all kind of wrestle, internal, internal reminiscing was going on. Why is this happening in the midst of, why is, why is God punishing? And a lot of questions, worldview questions were coming up. And it was in the newspapers that why are people were complaining? Why the Muslim nations are not helping us and things like that? So, so what is, what's, what's in their mindset? Those are some of the stories which triggered for me to, to dig deeper into the misunderstandings when we show compassion in honor-shame context. When we look at cultures throughout the world, there's different ways of dividing cultures or classifying cultures, and, and one is according to these three systems of cultures. Guilt-innocence cultures, which are typically the Western culture, where really the dynamics based on why we do what we do and how things are going is based on it's, you're either guilty or innocent. And based on that, things are move forward or, or we need to resolve something. In more animistic cultures, which are more the tribal groups, there we have power-fear cultures. Really the manipulation of the spirit. When something goes wrong, it's, it's not because something's, we, you did something wrong, but something is, something is, is not, not in sync with the spirit world. And we need to manipulate the spirit world to put things back straight so the power side is back with us. Honor-shame cultures are collectivistic cultures where really what counts in the group you belong to is and if that fits in or it does not fit in. Is this honorable or is this shameful? And most of the unreached people groups today in the world are honor-shame cultures. We've done quite well in missions in animistic settings, power-fear cultures, the Western world, and individualistic culture, in more individualistic cultures, more uh, described as guilt-innocent culture. Um, but most of the unreached people groups would be described as honor-shame cultures. Okay, none of these cultures are really all single one of those. There's always a mixture of these. Yeah, We are supposed to be a guilt-innocent culture, but when you see how we treat our politicians who are in the other camp than our camp, we treat them from an honor-shame perspective uh, these days as well, in the Western culture as well. So, so it's, there's a mixture of, of these elements. So some cultures are more inclined to be one or the other. That's, that's, that's the only point I want to make at this, this point here. So... So we talk about shame, a definition by Jackson Lewis, it's the fear or the pain or the, st- the p- fear, pain or state of being devalued according to a set of standards, some standards. This could be your own standards, like I need to do this, but can I live up to that or not? Is honor or shame. Social standards of my community, the circle I belong to, in an, in an Asian Buddhist culture, probably is your family circle. In a Muslim culture, it's probably the whole village or the whole Muslim community you belong to. The social standards of that community. 
Or it could be sacred standards. Your standards you feel towards your God or to whatever you worship. Are you measuring up to those sacred standards in, in honoring those religious standards, those gods or God? Or, or am I not living up to that? And that's my shame before God. Shame can often describe as about who you are seen as by the eyes of those around you. So you may be stealing somebody and nobody sees it, so you don't feel ashamed. But in, but in guilt, innocent culture, you would still feel guilty. Yeah. But when it's seen, yeah, then, then the shame gets. So it's about who you are seen. While guilt is about what you have done. That's, this are some simplistic ways of looking at these things, but hopefully this, this gets us going in what we were talking about. So I'm going to talk from the context from experiences living in Southeast Asia. Indonesia being the largest Muslim world and work with Muslim peoples over there. There's other honor shame cultures, like, like Buddhist cultures and things like that in that area as well, and Hindus, if you go a little bit farther west to South Asia, things like that. But those are the background of my stories. Um, but think about where do you have honor shame people around you? Just think for a second and imprint in your mind. Is it maybe a migrant family has moved into your neighborhood or into your city? Is it an unreached people group which God is calling you to, to go to? Farther away, think about it and, and see if there's, there's things which, which resonate with what we'll be talking about this morning and, and in your heart pray how these things may be relevant. When we go to a, a different nation different and different people who speak a different language, have different habits, a different culture, yeah, we observe first what's done. We look at people's behavior and what people do. Like somebody is sick, they may go to the shaman, they may go to the doctor, they may go to traditions from the family, depending on the culture background they come from. Okay, what is done? And why do they do this? Well, it's based on a value system, answering what's good or best. Or, and those are based on your beliefs. And even deeper on what's your worldview, what are your basic answers to questions like why I'm here for, why is there suffering? Uh, what's the purpose of life, what's after death, and all those questions, that are the worldview questions, which answer what is really real. So when you have meet people meeting from two different cultures, if you're the orange worldview, world orange person, meeting somebody from the blue worldview, like you're a Christian, somebody Muslim, since that was my context, okay, you as a Christian, or you may do something, because it's good. I stood up to want to do the dishes, and at home. Because that was good for me. They observed the same thing which I was doing and they interpreted completely differently from their worldview. So there can be differences, there can be clashes of understanding. Or an event like a tsunami. Is it something, a punishment from God or is it just a natural disaster? And, and that fits somewhere in God's plan, but uh, we don't dictate that as in the same way as Islam dictates the meaning of disaster. Or suffering. We'll talk about it a little bit later as well. So this morning, we want to talk about several things. The difference in worldview between us and Christians and, and those from honor-shame cultures. I'm going to highlight Islam. At least a, a generic form of Islam, because there's many different shades of that as well. I want to talk about how Muslims see us, illustrating that from how experiences in Indonesia. I want to look at how we make sense of an event and how those things are different from, from my worldview than somebody else's worldview. And then we want to see on 
our response to that. If we respond to that with relief work, if we bring medical health care to the community or teaching English to your migrant neighbor or helping him or her with her tax forms or teach, yeah, living life in America or an urban poor community, you come in there. Why? What we do and what we mean, that action may be interpreted in a different way or maybe in a similar way and how can we adapt our our response so that it will be interpreted in the right way or what context can we create so that it's interpreted in the right way. So some things we want to talk about. And when we want to share Christ, we need to make sure that the gospel really changes people's mind. We're not just out on people changing people's behavior. We change people's behavior, yeah, we're just changing uh, people's outward actions, and but we get some syncretism. You see that all over the world. Yeah, even some Christians, they still go to the to the witch doctor, but they haven't realized that Christ is the answer for um, for, for for those problems and um, they deal with. Well, outwardly, they also go to church on Sunday morning. In some countries, I've seen that. So, going to the Muslim world, we see a lot of needs. Not just in the Muslim world, but just a list of things I've seen in in the, in the Malay world. Economic health issues among the in, this is urban context only. Environmental education disabled, drugs, street children, prostitution, domestic abuse. I mean, this is ongoing, and we're not going to detail of those. Same in the rural areas, many challenges, as well as migration, transmigration, trafficking, war, terrorism, refugees. The list doesn't seem to end. The pandemics have been added to that list in the last two years. So, And then there's the disasters. All needs we can respond to. All opportunities to demonstrate what the gospel is like alongside our proclamation. It's been said... And these statistics are a moving target. But at least 60% of the world's poorest people are Muslims. Is 60% of the Christian relief work among Muslims. Or 75% of the world's refugees are Muslims. And that, that has changed even more rapidly, this, this number. So um, many of the refugees today are Muslims. Are we reaching out to them? And yeah, wouldn't you think that their physical need is an open door? to reach their whole being, to proclaim the good news to them, to introduce them to Jesus. We like to do it. So let's jump on the plane and let's go and do it. Until you do the dishes among them. and Find out they don't like you. <laughs> or some of the things you do, you don't like you. Of course, these things do not happen in isolation. There's many other questions which Muslims have. And I'm going to focus a little bit on Islam a little bit, but... Uh, because Islam has a really wide circle in which honor, shame, dynamic fun- focus functions. Um, and that's the context where kind of this, this triggered looking into these things. So what is the real face of Islam? That's a question which many Muslims wrestle with among themselves. I mean, many Muslims, there's so, many, there's so much suffering among Muslims because they're persecuting one another. What is the real face of Islam? Is it this more, more literal translation or old-fashioned application of uh, historically, Islam has been doing is it a more modern version? There's not one hermeneutic interpreting their scripture. There's no Holy Spirit to guide them. I mean, that's us as an outsider looking at it. But internally, they are wrestling with what is Islam and how do we? If this is the if this is real, the real thing, how how is this going to work? And they're wrestling with that amongst themselves. And so, when it doesn't work well, there's shame, and so they're they're trying to 
outdo it with something else, something often something more extreme or something in a different, completely different way. In Indonesia, we saw the honor shame of polygamy. Is it something honorable because it shows status? I can afford multiple wives. Or is it something shameful? Is it something which shouldn't be done today anymore? What is the real face of Islam? We've seen several made main Islamic clerics taking a second wife and suddenly they lose all their support because suddenly that's, that feels wrong to a lot of people, especially women. Globalization. In the past, if you had a question, you go to your local imam in your village and it was the only source of truth and information, and that was the answer. Now, if you're not been sure, yeah, the internet is there. People travel. You can go anywhere. So you can get your questions answered in different ways. Maybe not necessarily more truthful, but you can get your questions answered in other ways. And do you pick and choose? How do you know what's truth? Everything is comes towards Muslims today. So that, that kind of is a is quite a, a challenge, maybe a crisis. The internet gives great opportunities as well as great temptations. Internet pornography is as big as a problem in the, in the Malay world and among Muslims as it is in the West. And yet, and the gospel also comes to them through the internet. So opportunities are there as well. So when we go to them, those worldviews often clash, especially when we show compassion when it's really visible. Because showing compassion is often the first thing we can do, especially in a country, places where you can't proselytize, where you can't just openly start with the gospel. And probably starting with the gospel is maybe not even the right, right place to start anyway, because there's immediate needs. Remember that whole list, there's three pages of lists of, of needs many of these people have. So it happens. You do tsunami relief work, you do uh, urban poor ministry, you help your neighbor, you help your migrants. Where are some of the headlines after the tsunami? Christians face jail for giving treats to children of Muslims. Tsunami aid workers suspected of trying to convert Muslims. Three Christian women arrested for attempting to convert Muslims. Defying the law to convert Muslims in tsunami aftermath. These are just a few in English. In, English. in Indonesia there were many more headlines like that. There's a backlash when we try to do good, good things. And... Yeah, it gets media attention, and there's a lot. Of it. In some ways, it's yeah. The testimony of Christians can be very critical in how to respond to this, um, because they get quite a bit of um, attention in the media. So they they're warning you against Christians. Yeah, most of these are in Bahasa, but for example, one is Valentine's Day. Not for me. I'm a Muslim. Okay, for us as Christians, Valentine's Day is not not really a Christian holiday. Uh, definitely not biblical biblical holiday. Uh, but they see it as something from the West. They haven't separated it from, uh, from Christianity as a tradition. They don't interpret it the way um, as it has been evolved and why we have Valentine's Day today. Um, they think it, oh, it's uh, one of the ways to Christianize us because, I mean, love and nice flowers and being romantic, yeah, that resonates. But is it a subtle way to uh, Christianize someone? Christianize is a verb I learned in Indonesia. So, and other things, and just be aware of all kind of things. So here's a list of a website, a Muslim website, warning fellow Muslims against Christians. This is what Christians do. Beware of them. Okay? 
And this is street Islam, okay? Not necessarily some of the imams in the U.S. will proclaim this. Uh, this is in the majority Muslim countries where Christians are a minority. It's going to look different in, for in, the, in the Philippines where the Muslims are a minority and the Christians are a majority. So it's, it's going to be different. So, so this, is, this is definitely of a local context here. But this is some of the ways Christians are thought of uh, manipulating others to become Christian, to take them out of Islam to become Christians. Okay, we use education. Healthcare mission, medicine, here we are. Philanthropy in, in general, philanthropy in general. Giving out food, paying school fees. I mean, COVID relief is a great way to cope among the poor these days. Food packages and things like that. But there's some people who warn, don't accept these food packages from people who are not Muslims. Books and media, book publishing, the internet, media, all ways to manipulate. Um, and now we're getting a little bit more and more the more evil side of things. Uh, raping was actually the word used in this, but I thought I used the word date. Christians will date a Muslim girl, get her pregnant, and to, to cover the shame, she needs to marry, and to be married, you need to have the same religion. So, and that's a way to make somebody um, a Christian. I've never heard of that being done intentionally. I mean, I've heard of some mixed marriages and the girl became a Christian, not because she was pregnant, but because she wanted to. She was really in love in it, or maybe she was really in love with Jesus as well, I don't know. Um, but I have had pamphlets in my hands where Muslims were told, go get a Christian girl pregnant, so she has to become a Muslim. I've had those pamphlets in my hands, so it's kind of projecting some of their own mindset on others. Drugs. Drugs is a Western problem. Drugs was not really a problem. Okay, but then, uh, yeah, but the drug problem has come into the cities. So it's, it's already a connotation of the West, which is equal to Christianity in their minds. Okay, and then there's rehabilitation programs. And who are the best rehabilitation programs? Well, there's definitely Christian organizations who are doing that. And so we've had that being accused, okay, and, and, and then people get, get really delivered and meet Jesus along the way, get a new life, but then they're no longer Muslim. And the outsiders watching that, hey, look, another strategy of the Christians. Yeah. Or the other way, folk Islam, mysticism and spells, putting curses on people. Hey, maybe Christians are bewitching you, so that you come out of Islam and will want to become a Christian too. I mean, Islam is often just the veneer, the jacket, in, in many of these, these contexts. I mean, in Indonesia, you can bring your car to a witch doctor and he fixes your car. Don't ask me how he does it. It's all behind the screen and I haven't inquired, but uh, we have. To. So, yeah, so they're projecting what they do and how they manipulate things. Like if they want to date some, uh, if, you want, if you're interested in dating somebody or in a business transaction to be successful, you use, you manipulate the spirit world through spells and curses and things like that. So they're projecting that. That's how Christians must do the same thing. From a Muslim point of view, when they see us come in as outsiders bringing relief, I mean, we're not insiders. We come from the outside. We come with a Christian organization, do tsunami relief or urban poor development or setting up micro-loan businesses and things like that. Okay, why, why would people do that? Why would foreigners come and live amongst them in a much simpler way than they expect us to live in the U.S.? Well, they want to make money. They're paid by a big organization. They want to make merits, get blessings from God. Or they want to just show off their superiority, that their ways is better, and so kind of lure people out of where they're at and 
because we want to show up that our ways are better and through that gain power. Maybe a little bit of the old colonial agenda. Making converts. Development is just a pretext. A friend of worked in Turkey was mentioning, oh, in our country they, they think Christians want to take our lands away. So there are kind of all kind of motives, and they probably will vary from context to context. These are some general ones. Um, so a lot of things, a lot of misunderstanding. Yeah, I hope none of these reasons are really why we want to be involved in medical missions. Okay, there may be some of these benefits, but uh, that's not what we're really after. So let's look a bit at the worldview. Islam. Five pillars. Declaration of faith, five times prayer, almsgiving. It's cheaper to be a Muslim, only a 40th, not a 10th. So only 2.5%. Almsgiving, fasting month, holding the fasting month, and the pilgrimage. So it's conforming, doing these things. They're all outward things which you have to do. It doesn't require a heart change of anything. Well, you need to have a heart that is willing to, to start doing these things. But it's... There's something really attractive. It's very outwardly, and there's, there, there's honor in that. There's an honor in, I can do these things. There's a confidence in the flesh. It's like the Pharisees in the New Testament. There's that, that confidence and that pride and that honor in that. And then in that, there is, yeah, you're doing this in a whole community. This is imposed on a whole community. So all the whole community is doing the same thing. And so if you stick out, you're not doing it. You're merely shamed. You're merely fall out of place. There's immediately a shame issue. So, so the circle of Islam is probably the biggest circle in which honor shame functions. In an Asian family, it's usually, in Asian context and in a Buddhist context, it's often just the, the nuclear family or so, or the larger network of the family, which is the circle in which honor shame functions. In Islam, it's, it's a family, but it's also the village and the whole community. And even in some points, in, in some contexts, the whole Muslim brotherhood you're part of, the Muslim community you're part of. So you really stick out if you're not doing that. And so, you are something different and you will be shamed with all the repercussions and potential yeah, uh, persecution for that if you don't fit in. Let's go a little bit deeper. In Islam, sin is not sin as sin is in Christianity. Sin is just a weakness. And man himself has the way to overcome that. And the way to overcome it is, yeah, the way we didn't overcome this is because we didn't have the right knowledge. Now, God has revealed that knowledge in the Quran through Muhammad. And so if you obey that, if you do that, yeah, you'll be okay. First, this is the total depravity, Romans chapter 1. Yeah, uh, Man is not made in the image of God in Islam, as the Bible says we are. And so because we're totally depraved, we need an external savior. We cannot save ourselves. We're desperate. We need grace. We need Jesus to come in. And of course, that God did that. In Islam, God doesn't love mankind this way. God is distant. He's one singular one. And we can really get to know him. He can do whatever he wants. We're not like him at all. We don't have shareable attributes from God. Uh, God can do anything he wants. Versus a Trinitarian God, where love is already built in even before we are created or outside who we are as men human beings who can love. He's already relational. And he wants to be intimately involved because he created us for his glory, for a purpose to be in relationship with him. God's rule in Islam is really an external rule. 
set up through the Sharia laws, all the laws, how you have to behave. And so in Islam, religion, is culture, is law, is society, is politics, is all, is all one thing. You cannot uh, be part, have, have separation of, of, of mosque and state. And so that unity is really conformity to all these rules. While, yeah, God rules within, wants to dwell within us through Christ and the Holy Spirit. Because rule from within, and that overflows outwardly. And the Holy Spirit gives different gifts to people. There's different forms, different shapes, different cultures re- reflect God's glory in different ways. There's a, there's a unity, but it's a, uni- it's a much more magnificent unity. A unity in diversity. And there's an individual responsibility. And yet we belong to a new community as well, the church. Which is, yeah in which we let Christ rule, and we, but we cannot impose the church on, the, on those who do not bow down before Christ, the outside world. So we invite people in, come to know God, and from there into the community. And we have to do, learn a lot about that still. In Islam, fatalism. They're kind of the hyper-Calvinists. Whatever, God hap- whatever happens is God's will. We can't do anything about it. We really saw that after the tsunami, I just resigned. I don't know why it's happening. It's terrible. It's, I'll just suffer and if I die, I die. No more hope. No, no perspective. No way to interact with a God who doesn't want to interact with us, who can do whatever he wants. Allah's moral, moral character is ultimately unknowable and Allah's ways are beyond our all understanding. Muslims are not certain about God's ultimate attitude towards them. So it really is, is a distant love. They don't know God personally. They have 99 names of God. And some of them reflect something personal, personable, like God is, Allah is the most merciful, He's the most loving. But that's on paper. What does that look like? It's much harder to understand. So for practical reasons, He really is the judge and the ruler, other names He has. As he is not involved, yeah, Muslims seek that power, that love they need in other things or things which are not covered in the Quran. So that's why they go to witch doctors, if that's their option. Or some of them rely on secularism and, and, and wealth of the West uh, to get power and, and get the other meaning, the things which make meaning in life. But perhaps maybe the most important thing that separates Christianity from Islam is the attitude towards suffering. Suffering is not part of God's will in Islam. Suffering is pain, is shame. It's a weakness. And how can, if, you, if you're on God's side, how can you be weak? If you're on God's side, you need to be strong. That's honorable, not something shameful. So Islam has to deny even the cross of Christ because of, not out of historical certainty, but because of out of a theological necessity, because suffering and weakness is what Christ showed and did for us doesn't fit in that picture of the honor, the honor which belongs to God. Same as how they look at the, our scriptures, the Bible. They think our, they, they say our scriptures are, are, are falsified or been altered. They can't pinpoint what and how. But when they read it, they see King David falling in sin, Abraham uh, lying about his wife. They see all these great prophets and their weaknesses and imperfections. But they're prophets. They should be honorable. They shouldn't be. So, so did we change the scriptures in order uh, so, so to make them look worse or something like that? So 
it's an important thing to know that suffering is shame in Islam, and, and, and that's kind of the real reason behind. They will, their apologet, apolog, their apologetics won't, won't cover those issues, but they, they they will just use other arguments. But if they have to give in, then they have to admit that hey, there must be a purpose in suffering and things like that. So one way to differentiate those two worldviews can be summarized by their historical or, or historical origins. Islam begins when the Prophet Muhammad is being rejected in Mecca. And when he has his visions and tells other people about it. So he flees to Medina. He flees from suffering and persecution. And in Medina, when he, that, that, that fleeing is the beginning of the Islamic calendar, Hijra. Okay, there he builds up political and military power as tools for his purpose and his own freedom. Okay, to seek the way through honor and to making to establish uh, through strength and conquering and, and honor. Christianity begins with Christ, God incarnate, refusing the way of military and political power. Even at his ascension day, they were asking, "Are you now going to restore Israel, free us from the Romans?" As implied in that, no. He chose the way of suffering and persecution in order first to set to set a sin suffering humanity free. And we're as a church are the continuation of that as he brings it. As we bring the good news to the nations, he will restore things one day, one glorious day. So power, wealth, success, and even knowledge are the signs of God's blessing in Islam. Like when they found oil in the Middle East, oh, finally God is on our side and, and helping us out and and there is there for us. And then, yeah, and this is the best. God is the best. And so why would you leave the latest revelation, the last revelation, which is supposed to be unalterable, why you leave that? Why would you leave that for something which is lesser than that? The previous revelation, which was Christianity or some form of Christianity or, or Judaism. So, so a Muslim who renounces Islam has in Allah's judgment forfeited his right to live. He has committed high treason, as one Imam in Washington D.C. once said. So, um, there's something shameful when you leave, and it's visible to the whole community. And then historically, they've kind of loading up shame on us as Christians. Christians have sinned against Muslims. Remember the Crusades? How they tried to conquer Jerusalem and all the suffering there? Actually, the Crusades wasn't an issue in the Muslim world against Christianity until the Ottoman Empire fell. Only after that, just a little bit over one or two centuries, that this become as a, an argument against us as Christians. Then the colonial period was at the same time developing. So the colonial period when we ruled, we Western nations ruled Muslim areas, or right after World War II when we allowed Israel, their enemy, to set up a nation, something which they saw as a great shame against Islam as a whole. And then, of course, we don't have God's latest revelation. We're only second best. So being attached to any of that for a Muslim, that in itself can be a cause to shame. I mean, it's harder to do in a globalized world, but yeah, some people still don't want to come to to Christians' home. We had in the town I live, Iranian students are warned: don't go to a Christian home because they want to do all kind of things to you. So, um, yes. So now, that's how to make sense when suffering happens. How do Muslims make sense when suffering happens, especially to fellow Muslims? Or how how do you make sense of when we come in, like after the tsunami, yeah, 
there was some Islamic relief ultimately, uh, but there was always the picture, are they just doing it? Well, they, they were bringing real relief, but there was also the, the picture like, are they doing it just to save face compared to the other agencies, or was it really an unconditional love which sends Christians to go to do relief work? So that was, was quite a, a game changer on the mission field, thinking through all the issues as they emerged and why is this happening. It took many years to, to kind of think through to make sense of them. Um, I was in an American church, on a, on a, which is a guilt-innocence culture, listening to a sermon on peacemaking, conflict resolution. And you may have seen this. This is a book from Ken Sandy's book, The Peacemaker, on peacemaker.net. He talks about how we deal with conflicts. He has nothing... He didn't think about honor-shame cultures, I think, when he wrote this book. But he kind of looks lists ways, even in the West, we see ways how people respond to conflict. And I put them there instead, so you don't have to look on the circle. Put your head left and right. Okay? The responses to conflict in very extreme ways. I'm in conflict with you. I really don't like your opinion. I'm going to kill you. Quite extreme. I'm in conflict with you. Man, how do I get out of this? Let me kill myself. Okay, those are the extremes. The top murder, the bottom suicide. And there's the whole list in between. Okay, litigation, assault, accountability. Yeah. Uh, in the middle is the ar- arbitration, mediation, negotiation, reconciliation. The bottom is overlook, denial, flight, suicide. And when I, I was just when I was thinking about a sermon, it was a great sermon, by the way. But I really thought about I lived in a society with honor killings overseas. Like, hey, and suicide. Well, we know many cultures where suicide is, is also. Definitely an option considered. I mean, the Japanese, harakiri, and other things, and there's some other terms I can't think of at the moment, but uh, honor-shame cultures are, are known for those extremes. But the middle, yeah, we, we don't really have. There are the, the flight and the, and, the, and the fight responses, or the make it right in the middle ones, the sad, mad responses versus the glad responses, the make it right. Uh, those we don't... See in, in honor-shame cultures. We have the shame responses of suicide, flight, and denial. And we have the honor responses of assault, litigation, and murder. But those middle peacemaking responses, especially when from the outside we come in and try to help. Yeah, though, and, 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 and they, they, see, they, they, they sense a conflict. Hey, you're a Christian. You're not supposed to do this, but why are you doing this? Can we reconcile this? Can we make this right? That's not there. So there, there is... In the middle, those peacemaking responses or those responses of love to make things right, for win-win for both party, for parties, those are the love responses. And that's, love is, is the core of the gospel. That's why Jesus came. It's what we want to bring into a community. Uh, that's what we want to bring. And so, but that's, that's not there within an honor-shame culture. It's not prevalent. It's there within our own family. I mean, Muslim families... Moms love their children, and dads are proud of their children, and so on. There's this, in, in their circle, it is there. immediate circle is there. Um, and there's great hospitality in Muslim homes, if you've ever been to go to one and receive their hospitality. But you're still the outsider. And then when, but when you go too far within what they bring you and do something else, yeah, there's going to be, you feel honored or ashamed of what, what we do. So I've called it the missing middle on a shame cultures, the love part. And so... When we do something from the outside, which brings love, but they don't, they don't understand it. They don't, they don't have a category for outsiders. Do something from a different worldview. 
in their midst, what is it? And then you get what we saw in these earlier slides, those other agendas, which they project from their worldview upon us. And we get these misunderstandings. And yet, Christ's love compels us. Yet Muslims are made in the image of God too. And there is a vacuum that can receive that love. And that must receive that love. Otherwise, they're not whole. And so we, we must go. So we must bring them that love encounter. There are many other ways we can share our life with them or, or, or help them see God's power. It could be power encounters. It could be revelation, dreams and visions. It could be just love through relationship, truth encounters, the more apologetic or polemic approach. But I want, as we talk about compassion, honor, shame, cultures, let's talk about that love encounter. And as we come in their midst, what happens when we love a Muslim? Well, this is the ideal. Yeah, We love them. It's a personal relationship. We're demonstrating a personal relationship. And we're actually demonstrating what God wants to have as a personal relationship with us. And God wants to make us whole. There's restoration. And in that they meet Jesus. And as it's in a personal relationship and it's real and they feel, feel real is not something distant. Yeah, then they will be, want to be willing to hear more. And receive that truth. And receive the message. Not just truth as a, as a cold thing, but as a real thing. As something that really ministers to them. And want to follow Jesus and love others. And as love others, yeah, we get this movement. They want to share it with others. And, we, and they pass it on themselves. And we see the church planning movement, the disciple making movement happen. Uh, that's what we really long for. And that's why we do healthcare and other things. Uh, to show them that love, to, to, have, to, 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 to open a door. Because that's, that's a felt need which is first met. Of course, lots of things can happen there. People can misunderstand. Neighbors may not like what you do. Um, or opposition, they may themselves not understand immediately. They, they may need to feel more of that love before they can set aside all those prejudices we've seen earlier. So a lot of things can happen here. But that's what we need to do. And so when we go to community, yeah, let's bring that love. Let's have people experience that love and really be transformed by that, see how that love honors them, how that love heals them. Is it through medical care? Is it by teaching them English, by helping them do their taxes, by uh, education or hygiene or creation care or whatever God puts, has given you as, as inroads among them, that you love them, and if they see it's real, it honors them, it empowers them, it gives them an honor as well. It's not just dumping our stuff, imposing it on them. When they're willing to accept it, yeah, then that community like people want to receive Jesus. And we've seen it in urban poor communities in Jakarta, where we really have a whole team that can really reach all the families in the community. Yeah, they're willing to find out more. And many of them want to become Christians and, and, and then help one another and form a church, have a church in their midst. And so, yeah, there, there is, there's fruit. But then there's the next, next community right, right beside them. You don't have enough capacity to send a team there as well. You only have 10 people and you, you need 15 people in your own community. And so you definitely have no people for, for the next community. That community, the neighboring community, sees what you're doing. They observe from the side. They walk by or they cross the village and so on or hear stories from what's happening in the community. They observe it from afar, but they're not receiving it. They're not feeling it. 
It doesn't touch them. So they interpret it from their worldview. Okay, they're manipulating. They're imposing uh, their powers or they're stealing sheep uh, out, of Christ- out of Islam. It's misunderstood. It's missed. So they feel, okay, hey, our wider community of Muslims is being shamed because these people are leaving it and they're leaving the best for something worse. They feel shamed, the shame on their community, their larger community, and they start persecuting. They start persecuting us. So we've seen the antagonism of one community that's not reached on those who are being reached. I've called this slide, I've nicknamed this slide, Design Your, your Persecution. Because you need to think about it. Um, if, you, if, if you reach a family, but not the other families around it in the same village, yeah, you're going to reach the one family, but the, whole, the, the rest of the community will persecute. If you reach an individual, you just take one individual, kind of extract them out, and you reach that person. You give him or her her English lessons and, and love, and he or she wants to follow Christ. But the rest of the family is not involved. You design your persecution. So you need to think about reaching whole communities and, and what community circle you want to reach, and then realize that what's outside, that's where the antagonism will happen. I want to conclude this with some things we want to see Muslims understand, some things we need to understand as we reach out to them. So, Muslims love their, their love to worship, love love to honor their ruler, their Allah. Okay, we do, we obey exactly what He says, and we just rule, we we just do what He says. That's as far as honor goes towards God, because that God doesn't want to be intimately involved. But in Israelites, just a picture of a king, you honor a king or a sultan or whatever by obeying all his rules. Yes, that's honor. But you will honor a person even much more when there's a love relationship between these people. If the subjects of a king love their king, yeah, automatically they will honor the king even much more. They will talk about how great this king is. They will uh, tell people from other countries, come and see our king and things like that. There's, there's much, more, much more greater honor when there's a love relationship between the subjects and the ruler. And the invitation we have to bring to Muslims is come into a relationship and honor and, and, and be, be healed, be, 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 be served, be, receive grace from this king of kings. And in that relationship, when you love him, you will bring him much greater honor, much greater delight in that instead of just obeying. Islam talks about God being the greatest. And he has to be the greatest. He has to be the most honorable. Allahu Akbar. But if God is the greatest in all things, he must be the greatest in love too. And when is love the greatest? Greater love has no one than this, than when he gives up his life for his friends. Love is greatest when someone gives his life for others. And would God just tell others to do that, but not himself? If he just tells others to do that and not himself, then he is not the greatest. Then others are going to be greater in love. But God has demonstrated as this love, this most honored love in Christ, when he gave himself. Often we tell, when you talk to Muslims, don't talk about the Trinity, but if you talk from this, then maybe you have to start with the Trinity. You have to say that God is loving in himself and he gave himself for us. God has demonstrated. God is the greatest. When Muslims understand that, that if God gives the greatest love, then, then suffering suddenly can make sense. If we know why he suffered. 
wasn't just another martyr or something like that. He gave himself for us to redeem us. God has demonstrated as his love by giving us his son. And we ourselves, we need to understand the honor shame, how honor shame was being dealt with, the shame was being dealt with in scripture. I mean, Israel and the Middle East, where the scriptures come from, was an honor-shame culture as well. And definitely many honor-shame aspects there as well. So we need to know, understand honor-shame in the gospel. And we have wording like, Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. There's God's glory and there's love right there, enjoying love there in the Westminster Shorter Catechism. So the biggest thing, theological thing, if the biggest theological a uh, summary of what, what our purpose is to glorify God. We have honor shame language there. And scripture talks about all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans chapter 3. Or Romans chapter 1, how we have exchanged the glory of God for the glory of idols. The whole chapter on, um, on, on, on our depravity and things that it talks has, has honor shame language in there as well. The gospel talks more than just about fixing our guilt. It talks about restoring shame. God's creation was tainted by the fall. And God has redeemed his honoring creation by sending his son, by dying for us. His creation was tainted. Mankind was tainted. And that tainted his glory. But through that he made a scenario from before the foundation of the world to redeem things and something to make something much, to declare his glory much greater. And then we ourselves have our shame before God, our, shame, our sinfulness, which God has redeemed. So the cross, the suffering of Christ, that amazing grace by which we stand here, yeah, this is the solution which God brought to bring, give Him the greatest glory. Salvation, the cross, is all about honor, shame, alongside righteousness and, and innocence. And then through that, we belong to Him and He creates a whole new community, the church which is also going to be a very critical part for our Muslim friends to understand, and for us to understand, for the matter of fact, the new community to which we belong, and in which the Muslims should not feel shame anymore. And he should see that as, as a much greater community than just our immediate family. So when we go, whose honor are we really seeking? Are we trying to show off? who we are as a Christian organization, our ministry? Do we realize that we are loved with the greatest love? Mission is driven from an already fixed fact, from something already done for us on the cross. We can't add anything to that. We are not seeking more merit. We are not seeking honor for ourselves or for organizations. We are God's channels to restore His honor. Live out of that ourselves first but then to restore his honor based on his already finished work. Too often, Christian, we call a lot of things Christian ministry. But are we just setting Christian ministry in contrast to something else to show off that we're better or to fight for our, for our way of doing things? Demonstrating what Christian, Christians and our values are, how great these are, and how, that we feel good about them, and imposing them on others or defending us against others? Or are we really... Showing and inviting people into, under the Lordship of Christ. His kingdom. I want people to meet Jesus. Man shall not live from bed alone. And health care and creation care and development work. That's our step. But if it only would be that, 
men would still fall short of the glory of God. So we shouldn't confuse the effects of grace, which causes us to do, get involved in healthcare and, and all the gifts and, and love, compassion God uh, gives us to express his, his love. We shouldn't ex- confuse that with the source. Missions is living from the source and inviting to the source and then is expressed and demonstrated in that compassion. So let me ask, do you serve from grace in your healthcare ministry or whatever ministry God gives you, even proclamation, whatever it is? Do you serve from grace or do you serve for honor? Is my love for Jesus greater than those I love serve or than my love for my ministry? And sometimes when you go into a situation like that, it's, why is there so much suffering? It's so overwhelming. When you look at, at the pain and suffering, it's so overwhelming. Can you, do you trust? Do you, are you just trying to, trying to fix it or you get desperate yourself? Or are you going to really trust God's sovereignty that he sends you into the situation to show, to be his channel and keep focused on the source? Or a simple question I'd like to ask. There's so much goes around with Christian. We do so many things in Jesus' name. Put up. Do we have the audacity to, do we know the audacity that has been given us to do things in Jesus' name? And why? On what's based? Did Jesus have to die for that? So we used to talk about something Christian. Oh, this is a Christian ministry, this is, this is a Christian activity, this is what Christians do. Did Jesus really have to die for that or not? Let, let's ask ourselves some of these things. And so when we go out and maybe compare what are we do compared to maybe uh, a secular organization does the same thing. Yeah, how do are we really different? What makes us different? Samuel Bender, Paul Bender Samuel from InterServe said a while ago, the commitment to social change among these contexts we're talking about will inevitably at some point come into conflict with the desire to see men and women become disciples of Jesus. At least outwardly, conflict will be seen, and maybe inwardly. So the only way forward in this dilemma is to resist all pressure to compartmentalize our lives, and pursue our calling in a holistic way. And the last point is, is about reaching communities and networks. Again, this could be a whole topic in itself, but let's seek the honor of the community by outreach, in our outreach. When, you, when a, an individual is interested in the good news, say, hey, can, let's ask permission from your parents or from the rest of the family to tell it to the whole family or to, to, to reach out. Remember Village 1 and Village 2, Community 1 and Village 2, um, so let, let, let's seek as much, how can we reach the whole community? Seek permission, ownership from local leaders. And there's some stories I can tell about that, but we're running out of time. Uh, when Helping Hurts, that book, and a uh, whole series, Helping Without Hurting, from the Chalmers Center, talks about empowering a community, which is honoring. As Christians, honoring the local community, empowering them. talks about the ABCD, that's asset-based community development. So that would be a great resource to to do an honorable way to do our, to, or to do our, our compassion ministry. And of course, we need to do it incarnationally and contextually relevant to the people honoring their culture where it doesn't go against scripture. And then, of course, discern the opposition, the outsiders that will misinterpret and avoid the extraction of people out of it. So, so those are some of the, the final points, just kind of putting some conclusions together at the end here. So the greatest honor is received from being most loved, that love relationship with God, Allahu Akbar means also that he's the greatest lover by giving the greatest sacrifice, the cross. The gospel restores our honor, takes away our shame and belonging to a new community. Let's just give God's love, not our own love or seek our own honor. Let's not compartmentalize our life. 
the gospel from what we do. And let's reach love, empowering communities. So, are there any questions or any comments you have? Or are you just thinking? Yeah, go ahead. So how do you reach the community rather than just an individual? And so it depends a little bit on the context, which community you're talking about. So, so the example, I was, so I can think of several examples. So you see an, um, a migrant family here in the, in the U.S., maybe some of our new Afghan refugees. Through your children in school, you may befriend just a teenager. A teenager really likes what he sees in Western culture, and he's very open to learn more about the gospel. Things like that. Okay, are you just going to isolate this teenager and tell him the gospel because you know that Muslims are not going to like that what you do? Going to isolate and make him like a secret believer first, and then you don't know how it's going to blow up or how it's going to go. Or are you going to say, "Yeah, I like to tell more, but let's ask permission. Let's, can, can I do it with your whole family? Maybe invite the whole family over, or or go to the parents and say, "Hey, your son is interested." In the stories of Jesus, can I can I can I tell those to all of you guys instead of just to him? And so, uh, so do that. That would be one way of reaching community. Similarly, if it's if it would be um, a whole family or just one village and or, or several families in the village, you, you can reach out with healthcare, for example. Okay, don't just isolate that family, but let's think about all of them. If it is like if you come un, under like a nonprofit or some say some. Uh, so, so, some some context like that. I remember an, uh, a nonprofit was making friends in a community, and and they were doing sports ministry, a soccer playing out, right outside the mosque. But the mosque leaders were not asked for permission for that, so the whole ministry was closed out. So when they went to the next town, the next next community, well, let's go first to the community leaders. Hey, this is what we're going to do. And let's, let's ask permission from the leaders, community leaders, and involve them. Let them let some of their kids or whatever youth join as well, and let's do it that way. So those are, those are practical things which you need to research in your local context. But those would be some examples. Anything else? This should be in the speaker notes wherever they will be on the website. So you have the, this in handout section. So I should have told you probably earlier before some of you were taking notes a lot, but. Yeah, but maybe you learned it twice as well. So <laughs> good. All right, I'll hang around a little bit longer. So if you want to contact me, there's my email address as well. So we really appreciate this. So the best.